Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. Well, since March is International Women's Month, we thought we'd do something a little bit different. Welcome to our special segment, Honoring Incredible Women. Join us as we shine a spotlight on the remarkable achievements, resilience, and inspiring stories of women who have made a powerful impact on society and beyond. These are stories that we've covered in the past, and so we asked you, the Freak Family, to suggest your favorite stories of women who beat the odds. Hey, Kat and Jethro. My name's Elizabeth, and my favorite episode of A Badass Woman is one about Madame C.J. Walker. If you could let that go for me, I'd like it so much. Thank you. Sarah Breedlove was born in December of 1867. She was known as Madame C.J. Walker. You might recognize the name, but you might be like, why do I recognize yeah, the exactly. name? Yeah, exactly. It sounds really familiar. She was an African-American entrepreneur. She was a philanthropist and a political and social activist. She was born in Louisiana to Owen and Minerva Breedlove. She was one of six children. Her parents and her older siblings were enslaved on the Madison Parish Plantation, but Sarah was the first child in her family born into freedom after the Emancipation Proclamation was signed. She was, though, orphaned at the age of seven. Her mother died of cholera in 1872, and her father died a year later. At the age of 10, she became a domestic worker in Mississippi, and she would later say that during her childhood, she had only three months of formal education, which she learned during Sunday school literacy lessons at the church that she attended. So she lives with her older sister, Lavinia, and her brother-in-law, Jesse Powell. And the word is that Jesse Powell was kind of a dick and was kind of abusive. And uh, Sarah ended up getting married at the age of 14 in 1882. And uh, some say that that was mostly an effort just to get away from her sister's husband. Some things don't change much, you know? Yeah, there are always dicks. It's, uh, It's a pervasive problem. So they had a daughter. Oh, and by the way, if you are a dick, stop. Yeah, Consider stopping. So they had a daughter, Alalia Walker, in 1885. And then two years later, Sarah's husband, Moses, dies. So at this point, she's 20. She's got a two-year-old daughter. She's a widow at 20. Yep. So she moves to St. Louis, where uh, three of her brothers lived. And she was working as a laundress. 
Uh, she earned about a dollar a day, but she had this idea and she was very determined that she was going to make enough money to provide her daughter with a formal education and give her kid, you know, the life that sure. that she didn't have. Um, during this time, she's singing at the St. Paul African Methodist Episcopal Church, which for the longest time I thought was pronounced Episcopal. <laughs> and so she's seeing that sounds like some kind of a foreign condiment <laughs> oh i thought it sounded like a medical procedure well that, that ah, too... i gotta go in for my episcopal <laughs> hey hey i'm, I'm gonna Try... put some episcopal <laughs> yeah this hey non. hey hey don't eat that pancake without putting a little episcopal on it <laughs> mm. Mm. So she, she's going to this church and she's seeing these fine ladies with their nice hats and she's got this dream for her daughter and she's just really focused on making something of herself. She's also going through this really rough time with her skin and her hair. It was very common among black women at that time um, to have scalp issues. She experienced severe dandruff and other scalp ailments, including baldness to a certain point because of skin disorders mm. and the application of pro uh, products that they offered that included things like lye. You know, you, yeah. you can't put lye on your scalp all the time. It's not good for it. You put, um, you put the lie in the coconut. Right. That's different. Right. Um, Don't put the lie on your coconut. Never mind. Ain't there nothing I can take. A no, don't. A scalp aches. Mm? Oh, anyway. Yeah. Keep in mind at this time that uh, most Americans or at least many Americans didn't have indoor plumbing and central heating and electricity. There's lots of yeah. uh, issues with illness, poor diet, you know, and then when you're making a dollar a day, it's hard to to spend that extra dollars on making sure that your scalp is nice. It's just, you know, it, right. it was a rough time. She did, ho however, have uh, brothers who were barbers, so she had some understanding of hair care, and then she got a job as a commission agent selling products for Annie Malone. Annie Malone was an African-American hair care entrepreneur and the owner of the Poro Company. So this was right around the time of the Louisiana Purchase Exposition, which was also known as the World's Fair at St. Louis. It was in 1904. Sure, meet me in St. Louis. This thing was huge. I had no idea. I mean, I knew that these these expositions and the World Fair kind of things were, were huge, but I didn't realize they were $15 million of capital huge. Yeah, yeah it, it, In 1904? Sure, people came from all over for the world's fairs in in those days especially now i want to watch meet me in st louis we can clang 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 goes the trolley well it's our it's our date day so Ooh, okay yeah we can right. we can watch a, oh, a movie that. and and have okay. some delicious celebratory date day foods what was I saying? Oh, yeah. So it was huge. It was a big event. But overall, sales there were kind of a bummer because the African-American community was largely overlooked and ignored. And uh, Sarah was kind of bummed by this because this is how she's making her money now. Mm -hmm. And she's also feeling like, hey, if $15 million goes into funding this stupid fair, why can't we be represented as well. So she remarried in 1894. Uh, she ended up leaving that guy around 1903. Uh, so at this point, she's widowed and divorced. She's 37 when she moves to Denver with her daughter, and she continued to sell products for Malone, but that ended up becoming kind of an issue because at this point, she's 
starting to create her own line of goods. Okay. And Malone is accusing her of stealing her formula, but it was basically like a petroleum jelly and sulfur kind of thing, which had been around for generations. It wasn't a new concept. It was like if you said, hey, you stole my peanut butter and jelly idea. <laughs> it, you can't. It's no, I just made my own sandwich. Yeah, right. And it's delicious. So it's it's a gray area. In January of 1906, Sarah marries Charles Joseph Walker. He was a newspaper advertising salesman that she'd known in Missouri. And this is when she becomes Madam C.J. Walker. She starts marketing herself as an independent hairdresser and retailer of cosmetic creams. The madam was adopted from women pioneers of the French beauty industry. So she kind of created a character for herself um, because she was really savvy and she understood marketing and yeah. Very forward thinking. So uh, her husband was her business partner, and they talked a lot about advertising and promotion, um, and she started selling her products door to door. And as part of selling these products, she also started teaching women about how to groom and style their hair. It wasn't just here, buy this pomade. It was here, let me show you how to make this work for you. And by 1906, uh, she's actually doing pretty well, and she's put her daughter in charge of the mail order operation while she and her husband traveled throughout the southern and eastern United States to expand the business. And she decides to set up shop in Indianapolis in 1910. She established the headquarters for the Madam C.J. Walker Manufacturing Company. Um, She would eventually build a factory, a hair salon, a beauty school. She would train sales agents. She added a laboratory to help with research. And hired a ton of employees. Many of those key management and staff positions were women. She also trained other women to become beauty culturalists using the Walker system, which um, was like the products that we do, you would use and how to, how to do it. How to do it. Right. So between 1911 and 1919, during the height of her career, Walker and her company Walker and her company employed thousands of women as sales agents for its products. And by 1917, the company claimed to have trained nearly 20,000 women using the Walker system. Holy shit. Like I said, she understood the power of advertising and brand awareness. She advertised heavily, primarily in African-American newspapers and magazines. Mm -hmm. And she added um, training and sales and grooming, showing other women how to budget build their own businesses. She encouraged them to become financially independent. She started this whole side project, not just about hair, but how to be your your own person who can take care of herself and budget your own dollars. See, that is incredibly generous on her part, but also incredibly savvy. The idea that I'm just going to give you this information for free builds brand loyalty for sure it's also dangerous i mean a lot of people saw women especially at that time um, having their own understanding of money and business is dangerous and destructive in uh, let alone an african-american let alone an african-american woman absolutely and in 1917 Uh, She was inspired by the model of the National Association of Colored Women. She began organizing her sales agents into state and local clubs. So it's kind of like, um, think of 
you know, Avon or Mary Kay. I was going to say, it sounds a lot like like Mary Kay stole her idea. Right. The uh, result was the establishment of the National Beauty Culturists and Benevolent Association of Madam C.J. Walker Agents. Holy which is, crap. She could have worked on shortening that up. Sure. Uh, but they had their first annual conference in Philadelphia in the summer of 1917, and they had over 200 attendees. Uh, During this conference, she gave prizes to the women who sold the most products and brought in the most agents, which is like any other direct sales company that you know of. You know, your friends sell something and they're always trying to get you to sell it, too. You you know, this this model. And she was one of the forerunners of like, this is this is what we're going to do. So she um, also rewarded those who made the largest contributions to charities in their communities. Wow. This conference is believed to have been among the first national gatherings of women entrepreneurs to discuss business and commerce in the States. In 1917. In 1917. Um, Giving was incredibly important to her, and she encouraged it in the women that she was training. She helped to raise funds to establish a branch of the YMCA in Indianapolis's black community, pledging $1,000. She also contributed scholarship funds to the Tuskegee Institute, uh, various churches, schools, uh, the Palmer Memorial Institute in North Carolina. She was also a patron of the arts. In 1918, the National Association of Colored Women's Clubs honored her for making the largest individual contribution to help preserve Frederick Douglass's Anacostia House. Before her death, she pledged $50,000 to the NAACP's anti-lynching fund. That At that time, that was the largest gift wow. from an individual that the NAACP had ever received. 50 grand. 50 grand in 1919. That's crazy money. That is crazy money back then. So when she did die, it's 1919, and she bequeathed nearly $100,000 to orphanages, institutions, and individuals, and her will directed two-thirds of the future net profits of her estate to charity. So she wanted to know that even after she was gone, everything that she had helped to build was going to keep giving. So she didn't really have the company that long. She died in 1919. She built that company quickly. The uh, the headquarters for the Madam C.J. Walker Company was built in Indianapolis in 1910. So, yeah, no, um, it, 1906 was when she yep. she left idea. to do the, yep. the, you know. So, yeah, no, it wasn't long at all. But it exploded. It was so she was so savvy and so focused and so committed to not just the products, but these people and the communities. And I think people really latched on to that idea that it wasn't just you're buying soap, you're you're becoming better. At the time of her death, the average American's annual salary was $750. A year? A year. Wow, wow, and, wow. And when she died, she was considered to be the wealthiest African-American woman in America. Her estate was worth an estimated $600,000 upon her death, which in today's money, I worked it out, mm-hmm. is about $8,896,156. Not bad. Although she was eulogized as the first female self-made millionaire in America, according to the New York Times, she said in 1917, she was not yet a millionaire, but she hoped to be at some time. The legacy actually continues. She's got a couple of properties listed on the National Register of Historic Places. Villa Luaro 
is a mansion that she built in Irvington, New York, uh, in the mid-1910s. And it is mind-blowingly gorgeous. It's on the National Register of Historic Places, as well as the Madam Walker Theater Center in Indianapolis, which was originally the... um, the manufacturing company where she started in Indianapolis with the what eventually had the factory and the hair salon and the beauty school and all that. So it's it's incredible how much uh, she was able to amass in such a short period of time. You know, you, you, you hear so many stories about people that come from humble beginnings yeah. and then they achieve a high level of success and turn into fucking assholes. <laughs> Yeah. You know, money ruins people in many cases. Mm-hmm. How refreshing it is when you hear a story like this of somebody who comes from humble beginnings like that, mm. achieves huge success and then gives most of it away. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And um, like I was talking about earlier, it's it's one of those stories that I recognize the name, but I didn't know the story. And so when I started reading this, I just kept going, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And I kept reminding myself of the years that I was talking about. Like, so I'm reading this and I was like, oh, wow, she built this manufacturing thing. Oh, in a laboratory. And I'm like, okay, hold the phone. Wow. It's 1910. Mm -hmm. And she's an African-American woman. Right. And she and her husband, CJ, (laughs) Charles, Charles. She and Charles Walker mm-hmm. ended up divorcing in 1912. So most of this, she she did she did on her own on her own. Yeah, um, you know, he was there during the the beginning stages and helping to get it set up, and they they were business partners. Uh, but she they got divorced in 1912. She kept that name and uh, did did pretty okay. C.J. Walker sounds like the name of a really bad 1980s radio morning show host. <laughs> hey, it's C.J. Walker, everybody. Like it's, that. It's true. Yeah, yeah. I worked with a bunch of C.J. Walkers in my career. I know. So that's that's a, that's the magical story of Madame C.J. Walker. Very, very interesting. I had no idea. And again, I had recognized the name hey. and not because, it, you know, I had worked with somebody with a name like that right. in, in radio. <laughs> But it just, it's one of those names that you go, yeah, I, I know that name, but I don't know where that came from. It's like when you see an actor in you, in the movies and you go, oh, I know that guy. Who is that guy? He's that guy that was He's in that thing. that guy that was in that thing. Yeah. But uh, what an amazing story. Thanks for bringing that to life. Judith Love Cohen was an employee at NASA in the 1960s. She was responsible for helping to create the abort guidance system, which rescued the Apollo 13 astronauts. That day, as she was working on the problem, she went into labor. So she took a printout of the problem she was working on and went to the hospital. She called her boss and said she had finished the problem and then gave birth to actor and comedian Jack Black. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. All right, so it's my turn. Yeah. Here we go. This is going to be really rough because um, I can't really pronounce these words well. Oh, no. Uh, it's Actually, it's a Russian name. Here we go. Maria Vasilyevna Oktyabraskaya. I'm just going to call her. You know, I buy it. I <laughs> Everything that you just said sounds great to me. I'm just going to call her uh, Maria. 
Or, okay. or maybe MVO. MVO! Maria was born in a poor Ukrainian family on the Crimean Peninsula. She had nine brothers and sisters. She lived a pretty typical life for the time. This was in the early 1900s. Her first job was in a cannery. And this was her very first foray into uh, employment. She was thought of by many of her superiors as a very diligent, resourceful worker. Um, she then later became a telephone operator. And at the time, that was a really prestigious job. It was highly, a highly sought after position. And, well, it uh, was essentially like a communications job, right? Yeah. I mean, because you had to understand stuff. It wasn't just like beep bop boop. Yeah, it's not just putting beats in a can or something. It, Though early telephones would have been just two cans. That's Interesting true. that she went from canning <laughs> to. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. That is really ironic. <laughs> right? Uh-huh. So, anyway, because of her determination and resolve, she got this job. In 1925, she married a man who was a Soviet army officer. He this was his he was a um, a career military man. And they had a wonderful marriage. She was a loving supporting wife. She was very proud of her husband and began to acquire a, a genuine interest in his job and in all things military. She became involved in an organization called the Military Wives Council. This was the same point where she was she was training to become a nurse in the army. Oh, very cool. So she was really moving up. She's an advancement kind of gal. So because she was always hanging around in the military environment, she started picking up lots of skills like how to use weaponry. And, oh. and how to drive military vehicles. This was just her hobby. You know, that's what she hung out with her husband and learned how to shoot a bazooka. It's just what she did. She <laughs> said, quote, marry a serviceman and you serve in the army. An officer's wife is not only a proud woman, but also a responsible title. Oh. Well, Second World War rolled around. And uh, when the Eastern Front opened, Maria was evacuated to Siberia for her own safety. And while she was there, her husband, unfortunately, was killed by Nazi forces near Kiev. Now, because she was in Siberia, and this was the early um, 40s, 1941, it took two years after his death for her to learn about it. Oh, that's awful. It took two years for that information to get to her that Nazi forces had killed her husband in uh, August of 1941. Oh, I don't like that at all. That makes me feel all kinds of ick inside. Now, this was devastating news to Maria, obviously. They had a very close relationship. So, for a long time, Maria kept to herself. She didn't interact very much with uh, her family or friends during uh, this, this period of mourning. It was an extended period of mourning for Maria. And then she just got to a point where she was fucking pissed off. <laughs> She decided she wasn't going to sit around and take this. She decided that she was going to exact revenge on the Nazis for killing her husband. Oh, my gosh. She was determined to avenge her husband's death. Her family thought she was crazy, but Maria was determined. She was a very determined woman. So Fire what, pigeons? What she did. Oh, that would have been great. I would say this is even better than fire pigeons. Okay. The first thing Maria did was sell off all of her possessions. Everything she had, everything she owned, she sold. She then took the money and bought her own tank. (laughs) It was a T-34 medium tank, and she painted on the side of it a name. She painted Fighting Girlfriend 
on the side of her personally owned tank. Now, like I mentioned before, Maria had spent a lot of time with her husband and other military members, and she had picked up a lot of skills. One of them was how to drive a tank. That's amazing. But because she was not a member of the military, she could not get in uh, the tank and go to war. So... What she did was she petitioned the Red Army to be allowed to become a member of the tank corps. Now, they laughed her off. Silly woman, no, you can't do that. But that did not deter Maria. She was so determined to avenge her husband's death no matter what that she petitioned the State Defense Committee and Joseph Stalin directly. Oh, wow. Now, she was 38 years old at the time. In her letter to Stalin, she wrote... Quote, my husband was killed in action defending the motherland. I want revenge on the fascist dogs for his death and for the death of the Soviet people tortured by these fascist barbarians. She said, basically, if you allow me the opportunity to fight in the Red Army, I will donate my tank to the Red Army, but I must be the one who drives it. She's 38. 38. She's a year younger than I am. This is 1943 And I once wrote a letter to Hannaford grocery stores asking them to please bring back the Gardein Mandarin orange um, chicken style bits. Mm -hmm. And it's pretty much my big accomplishment. That was it? (laughs) So. Well, you took it upon yourself to lead the charge. Now, say what you want about Joseph Starlin. He was a guy who understood a good PR campaign. (laughs) Sure. He understood the value of propaganda, and he recognized the value of this request. He immediately approved her plan. Maria then underwent an intensive five-month training program, even though she probably didn't need it. Um, Even though Stalin himself had signed on to this idea, most of Maria's compatriots, of course, well, all of them were men, and uh, they put very little faith in her abilities. I'm sure they weren't all nice to her. No. Yet she persevered, she completed her training, and she was posted to the 26th Guards Tank Brigade, which is part of the uh, 2nd Guard Tank Corps in September of 1943. I'm just, I keep thinking about, like, what, uh, like, in Gone with the Wind, you know, what women could do to help Mm. the war effort was, like, give them their jewelry and stuff. Sure. And in this case, it was like... I brought a tank. (laughs) She was given the duties of driver and mechanic. Soon, Maria, in her tank, the fighting girlfriend emblazoned on the side, took her uh, T-34 medium tank into battle. Oh, my gosh. I like I want a piece of art with Maria and her (laughs) tank. Still, even though she completed the training, many of her fellow tank corps they saw her as they said this is just a publicity a stunt novelty. yeah a little more than a than a joke but their attitudes were about to change it was october 21st 1943 when maria joined the fighting <laughs> in a small village i'm sorry i'm so excited like i i know that something amazing's coming and i'm just like <laughs> like i am i'm almost goosebumpy <laughs> i'm like yes tell me tell me the story <laughs> the battle was raging by the time maria's tank corps arrived at the front the fighting was very hot the germans had a distinct advantage over the russian army at the time because they had uh, several machine gun nests set up on slightly elevated ground, okay. which gave them you know, the high ground, and they were shooting down onto the uh, Red Army and just wiping them out. From that position, the machine gunners were mowing the Russian soldiers down. The Russians would attempt to advance, only to be cut down again by a hail of Nazi bullets. This went on for hours. 
Before Maria showed up with her tank corps, Maria decided this was her moment of revenge. She slowly maneuvered her tank into the intense fighting, but as her fellow soldiers took up defensive positions, Maria just kept going. She drove her tank straight toward the machine gun nests in the artillery guns. As she got closer to the machine gun nest, her tank was hit by gunfire. She disregarded orders. She leapt out of the tank in the middle of this intense firefight to repair the tank. So she repairs the tank, jumps back into it, continues approaching the machine gun nests and artillery guns. She sustained more hits the closer she got, but she kept going. And then she just drove her tank right over the fucking Nazis. (laughs) (laughs) She just ran them over. A large, like dozens and dozens of Nazi gunners. They were crushed beneath Maria's tank treads. That must have that must have really felt good. I wonder, you know what? I wonder if she stopped and backed over him a couple of times just to make her point. This disabled all the machine gun nests and the artillery guns nearby. Single-handedly, she did this. She was then promoted to the rank of sergeant. <laughs> and all of a sudden her tank corps is like You know, we always thought you were really good. Uh, It was a month later, the 17th and the 18th of November, that Soviet forces had captured a small town in German territory. During the attack, her legend was elevated even further because of her skilled tank driving. On the 17th of November, she took part in an assault on uh, German positions. Again, her tank was disabled by mortar fire. An artillery shell actually exploded near the tank and it caused the tracks to uh, to come off. She and a fellow crewman again jumped out and repaired the tank in the middle of this hot firefight. Her fellow crew members provided cover for them while they fixed the tank. They jumped back in the tank and rejoined the main unit, again winning this battle. A couple of months later, on January 17th in 1944, Maria was fighting yet another attack as part of uh, the Leningrad-Novgorod offensive during the battle. She drove her T-34 through the German defenses and destroyed resistance in trenches and the machine gun nests again. She just drove over the Nazis. Unreal. Her tank crew also destroyed a German self-propelled gun. The tank was hit by German anti-tank shells. Again, the tracks came off. They were immobilized. She jumped out of her tank again in the middle of the, of the firefight. Heavy fire, small arms and artillery shells bursting all around her. She managed to repair the track. But as she was back in the tank, she was hit in the head by a shell fragment and lost consciousness. After the battle, she was transported to a Soviet military field hospital near Kiev. She remained in a coma for two months, but finally passed away on March 15th, 1944. She was posthumously named, quote, a hero of the Soviet Union in recognition for her bravery in the battles that she fought. That is the story of Maria Vasilyevna Oktyabraskia. That is something amazing. Like that. One intense Russian tank bitch. That is... That is incredible. The uh, so much of what she did during during the wartime mm. is impressive, but the idea that she just got herself there yeah. in the first place—that's mind blowing. Well, she bought her own tank and yeah. then she drove it over the Nazis. That's just that, what I'm going to do. That must have felt so good. Oh, I would imagine. You know, uh, she obviously had to sacrifice a lot mm. in order to achieve this level of revenge. 
when she broke through their defenses and mm. just started running over the Nazi machine gun nests, mm. I just picture her in her tank, you know, <laughs> just laughing her ass off, sipping a tab, you know, <laughs> having a good time, maybe maybe lighting up a cigarette, just watching the show. That was incredible. Well, I, I know how you love a good revenge story. You know I do. <laughs> you know I do. Well done, Maria. Most of my information came from allthatsinteresting.com and... Wikipedia. Oh, I wanted to mention earlier today, I was on the Freaks Group Facebook page, mm. and it had been a while since I had been on there, and it's just amazing to me how much it has grown and mm. how great the community is. How many people are asking each other for boosts? Yeah, there's over 6,000 members now, and they are so supportive and and so kind. And you know, Facebook is not a place known for its mm. kindness. No. <laughs> so it's really impressive how few issues we've had in the group. And that's, uh, I mean, in large part, uh, due to our mods. We have amazing moderators in the group. We sure do. Sam, Sonia, Kat, Katie, Aaron, and uh, and of course me. I mean, I, I pop in and I'm all like, hey, stop that. <laughs> but uh, for the most part, it's it's just them doing amazing stuff. And you, you all just creating this yeah. community and environment of not shittiness. I love it. Yeah. And boy, do we need it nowadays. A mm. place one can go and uh, not be bombarded with shitty attitudes. Yeah. So thank you for that. It's glorious. I'm very proud to be associated with that uh, with that movement. And, and if you haven't had a chance to join the Freaks Group, A Box of Oddities podcast, uh, you can search it out on Facebook and submit your request. One of our fine moderators will check in and, you know, you have to answer a couple questions and then you'll be you'll be one of us. There's just one question. And it's basically, do you promise not to be a dillweed? Mm-hmm. When talking about pirates, it's easy to conjure up the image of a swashbuckling man swinging from ropes, dueling with a sword, and yo-ho-hoing while drinking rum on a dead man's chest. But what a lot of people don't realize is that a high percentage of pirates in those days were women. They would keep their identity secret for the most part. If they were in a duel with another male pirate and bested them, at the moment their opponent lay dying, the pirate women would expose their breasts to show their enemies that they had been vanquished by a woman. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. Hi, my name is Valerie, and my favorite story for Women's History Month is The Night Witches. Whoosh, whoosh, whoosh. It's June 1941. You know I'm going with this. Adolf Hitler has launched Operation Barbarossa, his massive invasion of the Soviet Union. And by the fall, the Germans were pressing on Moscow. Leningrad was under siege and the Red Army was struggling. The Soviets were desperate. Along comes Marina Raskova, known as the Soviet Amelia Earhart, which I don't know why she can't just be Marina Raskova. (laughs) Why does someone always have to be the something something? Yeah. Just let them be their own thems. They have to be the Russian version of something American. That's, right? Yeah. It's gross, uh, right? I guess. I'm sorry. Whatever. Anyway, Marina Riskova's rad, and she is a trained singer and musician, and she had been the Soviet Air Force's first woman navigator and had quietly worked for the NKVD, which is the Soviet Secret Police. Okay. There's a lot of destruction going on. They're in the middle of a war. 
and she has been getting a lot of letters from women all across the Soviet Union wanting to join in on the World War II effort. Now, of course, they're allowed into outlying positions. They can support the men, the boys at arms. They can cook and type for them. Right. Um, But they wanted more real roles in the fighting. Why they have been allowed to participate in the supporting roles, they wanted to be gunners and pilots. They wanted to fly on their own. Many of them had lost people. Many of them had lost homes. And they wanted to be a part of this, this fight. So according to History.com, seeing an opportunity, Raskova petitioned Soviet dictator Joseph Stalin to let her form an all-female fighting squadron. What? Ultimately, the only air squad that belonged exclusively to the Dominion of Women was the 588th Night Bomber Regiment, the Night Witches. Wow, that's awesome. So she personally went to Stalin and pitched this idea? That's the word. That's incredible. That's pretty ballsy. Well, like I said, the the Soviet Union was desperate at this point, and there were so many women who wanted to help in whatever way they could. So where every single individual in this group, from the pilots to the commander to the mechanics, they were female. Raskova quickly started to fill out her teams. Uh, From more than 2,000 applicants, she selected around 400 women for each of the three units. Most were students ranging in age from 17 to 26. Those selected were moved to Engels, which is a small town north of Stalingrad, uh, to begin training at the Engels School of Aviation. So Steve Prowse, author of the screenplay The Night Witches, which is a nonfiction account of the little-known female squadron, uh, spoke a lot uh, about this amazing group of ladies. And according to him, they underwent a highly compressed education. Uh, they were expected to learn in just a few months what it took soldiers years to grasp. And each recruit had to train and perform as pilots, navigators, maintenance people and ground crew they all had to know how to do all of it and they needed to sew their own uniforms no 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 they were given uniforms okay good they didn't fit them but they were given uniforms they were also given very outdated equipment their planes were actually crop dusters what they were never intended for combat they were called the polikarpov po2 which is a two-seated open cockpit biplane made out of plywood with canvas pulled over it. Holy shit, that, that was antiquated even in 1941. It offered zero protection from the elements. And at night, the pilots were flying. It was sub-zero temperatures. That's like World War I technology. Maybe. It is. Yeah. The Red Baron flew an open cockpit it's biplane. It's nuts. I mean, you think about how cold it is on the ground at sub-zero temperatures, let alone in the air, flying at these speeds. Though, to be fair, they weren't flying very fast. Prowse said that the military, which was unprepared for lady pilots, offered them very meager resources, and the uniforms that they got were male soldier uniforms. So they had to make them work, and the oversized boots that they were provided, uh, he said that many of them tore up their bedding and stuffed their boots so that they would fit, and it it also provided a little warmth, uh, you know, for those sub-zero temperatures. I imagine. 
The upside to these tiny little planes was their maximum speed was slower than the stall speed of Nazi planes, which meant that these little tiny wooden planes could maneuver faster than the enemy, making them very hard to target. They could also take off and land in places that other planes couldn't. Like fields and exactly. things like that. Yeah. yeah. Because they're crop dusters. Exactly. Um, The downside, though, when coming under enemy fire, the pilots had to duck by, you know, sending their planes into dives because none of them had any sort of self-defense. No, no bulletproof canvas. No. In those days. No, for sure. And if they were hit with like a pyrotechnic charge, they would just burst into flames. Good God. So due to the plane's limited weight capacity and the military's limited funds, the pilots also lacked some of the other luxury items that their male counterparts enjoyed. Things like parachutes. Oh, yeah. Well, parachutes aren't very slimming, sweetie. Why are you being weird about this? I'm pointing out social injustice through satire. Okay, well, stop it. It's weirding me out. Like I've never weirded you out before. (laughs) Um, They didn't have radar. They weren't allowed to carry guns or radios. Instead, they were given tools like rulers. And cheese graters for when they made pasta for the rest of the troops. What is happening? (laughs) I'm sorry. I'll shut up. Go ahead. Pointing out social injustice through satire. They were issued stopwatches, flashlights, pencils, maps, and compasses. Well, they got a compass. Find their way back if they didn't burn to death after they've been shot out of the sky. No, it was one of the compasses that makes a nice circle. Oh, okay. (laughs) I see. Okay. (laughs) That's true. Anyway. um, Okay. So, the Polikarpovs could only carry two bombs at a time. And so they carried them one under each wing. And in order to make meaningful dents in the German front lines, the regiment sent out up to 40 two-person crews a night. And each crew would execute between 8 and 18 missions a night, flying back to rearm between runs. That's amazing to me. You're talking about, as you mentioned, an antiquated biplane that's Mm -hmm. made out of sticks and canvas and i had read somewhere where a lot of these older biplanes to waterproof them they rubbed the canvas with paraffin wax which made it incredibly flammable and great for your hands what are you doing (laughs) it's not so fun now is it but then you know you you strap a couple of incendiary devices to it Mm -hmm. it just seems like a bad idea to me i mean that is essentially a flying wick not a witch a wick though also a witch So the weight of the bombs forced them to fly at lower altitudes, which made them much easier to target, which is why they only flew night missions. The Germans nicknamed them the Nachtthexen, or night witches, because of the whooshing noise that their wooden planes made. Um, It resembled that of a sweeping broom. Wow, so, so the Germans were the one that gave them that cool name. Yeah. Okay. One considerable advantage was that because of the plane's primitive construction, it was very difficult to spot the night witches on radar. And when a pilot approached their target, the pilot would shut off their engine and glide to their impending destination. So that would that's all you had was that whooshing sound. I love these ladies. 
In fact, their gliding speed was so slow that they traveled at half the speed of a parachutist. And on the ground, the Germans had little warning. Um, They were reportedly so afraid of the night witches that they wouldn't light cigarettes after dark for fear that the night witches would spot them. (laughs) The planes, each with a pilot up front and a navigator in the back, traveled in packs. And the first planes would go in as bait, attracting the German spotlights, which would then provide illumination that the the follow-up teams could use. Smart. The planes, which rarely had any ammunition to defend themselves, would release a flare to light up the intended target, and then the last plane would idle its engines, glide into the bombing area. And that was the stealth mode that created that signature witch broom sound. How pissed off would you have been if you were a German soldier and you were told you couldn't have a cigarette and then they throw those spotlights on? Right. You know, I'd be like, I'm going to light up right now. (laughs) Obviously... The women faced skepticism from some of the male military personnel who believed that they added no value to the combat effort. Uh, Raskova did her best to prepare her women for these attitudes. But, of course, they they faced mocking. They faced sexual harassment. Some men said they didn't like, quote, little girls going to the front line. Okay. They probably didn't like little girls being more successful on the front line than they are. Yeah. You know? That sometimes happens. She's got more kills than I have. The Germans, though, recognized the night the skills the night witches had pretty quickly. Yeah, they were on the receiving end. And it was when the 588th Regiment heard of their German nickname, uh, they adopted it as a badge of pride. Mm. In fact, the Germans were so in awe of the considerable skill of the night witches that they spread rumors that the Soviet government had been enhancing the eyesight of women with experimental medicine to give them a sort of feline night vision. (laughs) So they were actually producing propaganda for the Russians themselves. Exactly. That's not smart. No. German military responded by automatically issuing a prestigious Iron Cross medal to any German who was able to shoot down one of the night witches. Hmm. The regiment flew harassment bombing and precision bombing missions against the German military from 1942 until the end of the war. They flew over 23,000 sorties. It was the most highly decorated female unit in the Soviet Air Force, with many pilots having flown over 800 missions by the end of the war, and 23 having been awarded the Hero of the Soviet Union title. Despite this, despite being the most highly decorated unit in the Soviet Air Force during the war, the Night Witches Regiment was disbanded six months after the end of World War II, and when it came time for the big Victory Day parade in Moscow, they were not included. Really? Well, it was decided that their planes were too slow so they would hold up the parade i see yeah all right it may have also had to do with other things but this was the 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 official ruling their planes are too slow yeah the planes are too slow for a parade Mm -hmm. but you can fly to the front yeah and bomb the germans yeah in a fire trap. In a fire trap. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so obviously a lot of uh, incredible things to overcome. Uh, but the the result, I think, says it all. Uh, there were 12 commandments the night witches followed. And the first of that was, be proud you are a woman. Hmm. 
The end. I love these ladies. Pretty rad, right? And there's a list. Um, I will post it. Uh, there's a list of the the leaders of the Night Witches. Most of their names I can't pronounce, sure. so I wasn't going right. to do that. Because they're Russian. Um, but pretty amazing chicas, for, for sure. I love it when women... That's the end of my sentence. Oh, okay. All it's right. just a... <laughs> That's it. That's the end. Mm-hmm. For our new listeners, we invite you to explore our other episodes covering history, medical oddities, incredible people. Abandoned funeral homes, all kinds of cool stuff. (laughs) Theboxofoddities.com is our website and all of our contact information and listening links are there. And we'll see you next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you. And its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those to whom I report to beseech you for assistance. We ask but one thing of you. To provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True. That is, two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2024. All rights reserved.